Well, last week um, we uh, saw that the, uh, uh, the, the prophecy of Isaiah represents a great turning point in um, the story, God's story, of the history of the world. Isaiah begins to see things which up to that point had uh, barely been imagined. There's a key slide we used last week. The Bible story is the story of the world beginning well, but then actually going wrong because of our rebellion. But God promised through a descendant of Abraham that he would put things right, first in Abraham's family that became the nation of Israel, and ultimately in the whole world. But slowly, over the centuries, it became clearer and clearer that this at least within the normal realm of things, is an impossible dream. Israel was just never good enough to bless the world. Even their best leaders, like King David, had feet of clay. And in the later parts of the Old Testament story, it becomes clear that Israel is actually marching, far from marching to glory and blessing the world, it is marching slowly and painfully to God's judgment to exile, to extinction. So what's happened to God's promise to Abraham all those years ago that his family would bless the nations? Was that just hot air? Well, we saw again last week that the message of Isaiah, what Isaiah begins to see is something new. Isaiah begins to to see that the answer lies, chapters uh, 1 to 39, in a new descendant of Abraham who is also God, a great king, who will bring blessing to all the nations. In chapters 40 to 55, um, Isaiah begins to reveal another figure as well, a servant who will bless the nations. That servant actually shares many characteristics of that victorious God-King whom Isaiah described in chapters 1 to 39. But uh, finally in Isaiah 53, it becomes clear that far from winning his victory through um, military conquest or uh, the sheer force and power of his personality, The servant will win his victory through dying. Dying for the sins of God's people. Dying for the sins of people from all nations. Of course Isaiah has seen Jesus. That's the great thing in the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah has started to see Jesus in a way that um, our older bits of, uh, of the Old Testament just hadn't seen. Jesus, the Son of God, who dwelt amongst us for a while. Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins. Jesus, who has now actually created a global people, the church, who come from every tribe and nation, just as Isaiah foresaw. People who, uh, who every one of them owe their existence, their faith, their spiritual life to the fact that Jesus died on the cross for them. So by the time that um, Isaiah's original 
readers have got to uh, chapter 56 of his prophecy, if they'd uh, read it right, they knew all that they had to do was wait. One day, this king, this servant, would come. One day, God's purpose to bless his world would be realised. And in many ways, we who live after the arrival of Jesus are in the same place. We've seen Jesus now. He's done the things that Isaiah predicted that he, that he would do, but we still have to wait. Jesus was quite clear that uh, uh, finally he would return again, that finally he would bring history to an end, that there would be a final and definitive judgment of God and forgiveness for um, uh, God's people and that there would be finally a creation of a new heaven and a new earth where every, uh, 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 all God's people would be resurrected and in glory. And in the meantime, God's people today have to wait. So Isaiah's told them all this. I wonder what Israel will do in response. Perhaps they will worship the Lord in awe and wonder. Perhaps they will uh, get out there and start telling the world about Jesus, uh, just as uh, Isaiah does. Isaiah issues a call. We saw it last week in uh, Isaiah 56. A universal call to all people to come, to repent, to bind themselves to God. Perhaps Israel will follow up that and and, uh, be out there telling the world about Jesus as they wait for him to come. At the very least, surely Israel will start getting her life in order because she now knows this God-King will come to judge the wicked and forgive the penitent. wonder what the church will do today as we wait. Well, we know what Israel did. As Isaiah tells us, far from uh, doing any of those things, she played. Isaiah 56 verse 9 to 59 verse uh, 21 actually is two parallel cycles of uh, teaching. Um, uh, And for this series we can only scan them very briefly but let me just show you the whole picture so that you know how this section of Isaiah fits together. Um, First of all, in 56 verse 9 to 57 verse 13, there is God's verdict on Israel's leaders. doesn't make pretty reading, we'll see, it, see that in a minute. Then, um, Dave read to us, there is a ray of hope, which we will look at later as well, in verses 14 to 21. Then, Isaiah returns again to God's verdict, this time on religious people, on the people of, of Israel. And that stretches through chapter 58 and most of chapter 59. And then there is another ray of hope. The first one was primarily grace with a hint of judgment. The second one, which we won't have a chance to look at um, this week, but 
some of the themes we picked up later on, so we'll, we'll catch them then, is primarily judgment, actually, with a hint of grace and hope. That's how the uh, structure of this uh, section of Isaiah fits together. And we'll try and get a flavour of it at least in the next few minutes. Let's begin by looking at God's verdict, which appears twice. First of all, the verdict on Israel's leaders. The verdict is, they are useless. They should be watchmen, we are told. They should be at their posts. They should be warning God's people. They should be calling God's people to him. But look at verse 10 of chapter 56, for instance. Israel's watchmen are blind. They all lack knowledge. They couldn't spot a dangerous sin if it walked in the room dressed as the Grim grim Reaper. They they couldn't spot a wolf-like false teacher if um, it howled from the rooftops and had blood dripping from his fangs. Let alone if he dresses himself as a sheep, as Jesus says they will. They were as gormless as little red riding hood saying, what big teeth do you have, Grandma? They're useless. They are, that they are like dogs without their bark, says Isaiah, verse 10 again. They are all mute dogs. They cannot bark. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. In Britain, we think dog, when we think of dogs, we think of um, faithful little pets. And if they don't bark and yap at us, then uh, so much the better. But in Isaiah's day, frankly, as in many other countries... Dogs were only semi-domesticated. You would see them lying around in the sun in the neighbourhood or, or roaming the streets. People fed them sometimes because it was useful to have them around for one reason and one reason only. They bark when strangers come. But Israel's leaders, they're like lazy, greedy dogs who don't even bark. What Isaiah is saying? What use are they? As as the description goes on, it becomes clear they are drunkards, they are oppressors, they are idolaters, they are more. Are are there leaders like that in God's church today? Well, sadly there are. Isaiah writes in very lurid terms, sometimes... As well, we hear lurid stories today about the lifestyles of leaders. But um, he's pointing to something that sometimes can be quite subtle. Idolatries of the heart can rule leaders without them having to sleep with uh, cult prostitutes and sacrifice children that Isaiah describes in chapter 57. Now, we can recognise false leaders primarily because they are blind the spiritual dangers because they serve their own appetite and most especially because they never bark a warning. And some of you here are leaders one way or another. Christian leaders. Christian leadership is not a place for self-service. Leaders must 
give themselves for God's people. They must watch over God's flock. They must be ready to feed others before themselves. They must warn of danger if necessary. They must spend themselves for others. And actually, all of us have to learn to be discriminating about the leaders we listen to. Jesus was absolutely clear God's church will always have wolves and they don't float around with a big sign on their chest saying, I am a wolf. They dress like sheep, he said. In my experience, actually, virtually all of them have no idea of the damage that they are causing. Because Isaiah says they're blind. Now that's a warning to people like me and it's a warning to all of us to be aware, to be alert, to be discriminating. And make no mistake about it, the nicest, most affable leaders are actually rarely the best ones. Because leaders must fall. Not always, not all the time, but sometimes they can't help do it. What do God's people do as they wait for Jesus? Well, says Isaiah, as I look around me, the leaders are just playing. They are lazy, greedy, mute dogs. And I have to say, personally, I've been around in church circles long enough to see that this happens in every denomination, in every nation, in every age, and God hates it. What's God's verdict then in the second cycle more broadly on God's people, on Israel? They're playing around as well. They're playing at being religious. Chapter 58, Isaiah picks out fasting for his uh, uh, particular attention. The the people fast, but not with the right attitudes. Verse 2 of 58. Day after day they seek me out, they seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? It's not that fasting and other religious exercises are wrong, but they are only a a valuable thing if they are an expression of a life committed to God. And the lives of Israel were very, very far from that. Verse 4. 58. Your fasting ends in quarrel and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Too, too often I meet people who go to church to get high on the singing and then go home and just continue their self-obsessed, unloving lives. Or, they, or, or to be honest, To be frank, in circles like ours, they go to church to listen to great sermons. 
and then go home thinking that somehow just the process of listening to it should have won them spiritual favour with God. Now God doesn't play religious games. He's not interested in religious games. He looks for humble, sacrificial, justice-seeking lives. Verse 6. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke, is, not, it is, is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Sadly, though, as Isaiah's message unfolds in this section, it becomes clear that that kind of life that God is seeking is nowhere to be found. Look at uh, chapter 59, for instance, verses 8 and 9. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks in them will know peace. So justice is far from us. Righteousness does not reach us. We look for light and all is darkness, for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. And uh, to be honest, our reaction is, oh, that's a bit of overstatement, Isaiah. Surely you're over, over-egging the pudding there. Actually, shockingly, this section is quoted in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 as the summary of his argument that as he puts it, there is no one righteous. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We need to understand that. This is a diagnosis of humanity in general. For all the good things that we do, for all the, the, all the ways in which we, we do of ourselves, do lovely things. In the end on our own, the verdict of God is that it is not enough. There is far too much darkness in our hearts for us to think that somehow, by our own efforts, we could curry favour with God. God's verdict then, shocking and stark, once for the leaders and once for the people, Not good enough. But we said that there was something else that uh, um, uh, was interspersed between these two verdicts and uh, it's uh, the first of those two sections that I want us to focus the rest of our time on. We only understand it in the context that Isaiah has set us. But then we can see how glorious it is. What is God going to do as he looks on leaders and people 
and sees darkness and injustice and idolatry and laziness, what is he going to do? He's going to do something extraordinary. And uh, he makes it plain. He's going to do it because what he does is founded on his character. His character is the source of his grace. Look at verse 15 of uh, chapter uh, uh, 57. This is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. God's grace that we are going to see in a moment, God's free grace comes from his character. And this description of God's character is is in many ways a summary of everything that Isaiah has said in the whole of his book up to this point in in a wonderfully evocative way. Because Isaiah uses the phrase high and lifted up three times in his prophecy. I want you to show you those three times to show you how Isaiah is heading towards this verse. The first one was all the way back in Isaiah chapter 6. Just turn with it to me if you've got the time. Isaiah's great commissioning vision where Isaiah says, "In In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This was a great vision of the awesome majesty of God. This is the God who is proclaimed by the angels in chapter 6 to be holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. This, this vision of God caused Isaiah to be shaken to his roots so that he said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. This is the most extraordinary, exalted vision of God. High and lifted up and holy and awesome and majestic and scary. But the second time that Isaiah uses the phrase is in a, is in a quite different context. It's actually in the second great section of uh, Isaiah, again, at a high point, the section that describes the servant. And there's Isaiah 52, verse 13. Just before Isaiah reveals that this servant will suffer for the sins of God's people. Isaiah says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be high and lifted up and highly exalted. The servant will be like the God of Isaiah 6. The servant is God-like. The servant who's about to die is high and lifted up and awesome. 
can God be both high and lifted up in his awesome, majestic power? In Isaiah 6, and yet the servant to be high and lifted up in his extraordinary commitment to die for God's people? hangs in the air until this moment in the third great section of Isaiah when God reveals himself again high and lifted up or I live in a high and lifted up place but also among the contrite and the lowly He is the God of heaven, but he is the God who came to earth to live amongst poor, lowly people, the contrite. God was lifted up on a cross to die so that humble and lowly and contrite people could come to him. We will only understand the character of God if we see him both as the awesome, majestic ruler of the universe and as the awesome God who's prepared to sacrifice absolutely everything to be alongside us, to die in our place, to dwell with us, to bless the contrite and lowly in spirit. This is the God whom Isaiah has seen. This is the character of God. Then. And that means something very important, something he will not do. Verse 16. I will not accuse forever, nor will I always be angry, for then the spirit of man would grow faint before me, the breath of man that I have created. He won't keep on being angry. Anger at sin is not his only reaction. It is a real reaction of his, but it is not his only reaction. Notice he won't won't keep on, not because we don't deserve it, but because actually, if he did keep on, we would be annihilated. Our spirit would faint we would be destroyed. And he won't keep on in judgment because actually his warning judgments never actually did make us repent. Verse 17, I was enraged by his sinful greed. I punished him and hid my face in anger, yet he kept on in his willful ways. In the end it didn't work. The world is full of people who exemplify this. They just keep banging their head against the wall as they continue to do silly, foolish things that result in in terrible consequences and yet they just keep on going. Isaiah described it right back in chapter 1 when he began to address Israel. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why should you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart is afflicted. And yet they kept going. Warning judgments do not transform people. So this is what the high and lifted up one is going to do. 
he's going to come in grace. Verse 18. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will guide him and restore and comfort to him, creating praise on the lips of the mourners in Israel. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord. I will heal them. It's amazing. It's amazing in the context of what Isaiah has set us. He is going to heal us, to heal our hearts, not because we turn to him, but simply because he's the gracious God who will not punish forever. He is going to guide us, not because we decided to follow him, We walked away. But because of his grace, so that he will cause us to follow him. He is going to comfort us, not because we deserve his comfort, but because he is the God who is determined to come to us, to love us, to pour out his love. And most of all, most wonderfully of all, is this phrase, um, I will, uh, where is it, um, verse 19, creating praise on the lips of the mourners in Israel. Only on the mourners, only on the lips of the mourners, notice, only on those who mourn their sins, only on those in whom God has done that wonderful work of creating penitence. But as he creates penitence, he creates praise. Actually, the most wonderful thing about that is that very word, create. Isaiah uses a very specific word, which was used way back in Genesis, and then has more or less dropped out of use in the rest of the Bible and still Isaiah starts to use it again and he uses it again and again and again in his prophecy. He uses it sometimes to describe God's great act of creating the world out of nothing. Do you not know, Isaiah 40 verse 28, do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. But uh, he uses it as well, specifically in the context of his commitment to create a new people for himself. Isaiah 45, for instance, verses 4 to 8. I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honour, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, there is no other. Apart from me there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men will know 
There is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You heavens above, rain down righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness grow with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Though they do not acknowledge him, the creator will do another work of creation. He will create a new people for himself. He will create new hearts for those people. This uh, passage which um, speaks then of God creating, same word, praise on the lips of the mourners of Israel, is designed to help us who have read Isaiah to remember those great statements about God's creative ability. He's going to create you afresh. He's going to create praise in you. He's going to create a new heart in you. He is going to give you life. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul describes what God has done for us. He had, though we were dead, he says, in our transgressions, God made us alive simply by his grace. And then, fascinatingly, he says, God preached to you peace to those who are near and peace to those who are far away. Do you see 57 verse 19? Peace, peace to those who are near and far. And then uh, Paul says, God created one new community, the church. The one who created the universe, created a new people as he brought them from death to life, as he preached peace to them. He is the creator of something new. So how should we respond? Perhaps I want to encourage you to respond in in two ways. Two specific ways. One is... Don't live with a naive illusion about the intrinsic goodness of your heart. Don't think, oh, if I just work a little bit harder, if I um, reform my ways, if I do all of these good things, then um, I'll make myself acceptable to God. God's standards are too high for us and God's, God's eyesight is too sharp for that. He sees into our hearts. He sees things that are wrong, perhaps that we are barely aware of. And because he is a holy God, he will not let those go unnoticed. Remember, Isaiah's verdict on Israel. Leaders and people. Religious people. 
and yet with a darkness inside that he exposes. That is what we are like in ourselves intrinsically. But the other is this. Let that reality, let that truth help you to see the glory, the riches, the magnificence of God's forgiving grace. The high and lifted up one who is majestic in Isaiah 6, who suffers for our sins in Isaiah uh, 53 and who in Isaiah 57 is both of those things. Awesome and majestic and with his contrite people. So that he will heal us. So that he will guide us. So that he will lead us. So that he will create something new in us. He says he will. And if you are a believer here this morning, you are a new creation. He has created that in you. He has begun that work. And that work will grow and grow and grow as you see the glory of Jesus and rejoice in him. And if you haven't yet seen that, if that's not yet your experience, then let me say to you, Don't be satisfied with a superficial and trivial assessment of the problems in your own heart. And don't give up until you yourself have seen the glory of the high and exalted God. He is the creator of the whole universe who is prepared to direct all of that creative power to your heart and to turn you from death to life to make you a new person and to give you the solid assurance that the work that he's begun one day will result in resurrection life beyond the grave, in the new heaven and the new earth, where the Creator finally completes His creation and there is no sorrow or mourning or death because God Himself is here and we will live in glory forever. My prayer is that not a single one of us here would leave without that being my experience. If you want to talk to me afterwards, do, do talk to me. If you want to pray with someone nearby uh, about this at the end of the service, then um, uh, do do that. But don't be in any doubt. This is crucial. This is central. Your life depends on it.